0: Hebrews 2, verse 5. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man, that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So consistent with the theme of Jesus is superior, we start to talk about the salvation of Jesus, which is superior, which means we start talking about the incarnation. Because Jesus, uh, the plan through which God worked out our salvation is the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Jesus becoming human flesh, becoming a man dwelling among us, living perfectly according to the law, and therefore gaining actual righteousness before God, dying for our sins, therefore paying for the sins of his people and being resurrected from the grave, showing the conquering of death. So the rest of chapter two continue this theme of Jesus as superior emphasizing his role in the work of salvation. And we talked about multiple double meanings that happen within these passages, and as this passage references Psalms. Uh, We talked about the double meaning of angels and how the Greek word for angel is the word messenger. And so what Paul or (laughs) what not Paul, the author of Hebrews, is saying. That's what happens when you teach on Hebrews a lot is you want so badly to have an author. Uh, What the author of Hebrews is saying is the messengers that God sent that we talked about in chapter one to bring the word of God to the people. Jesus is superior to them and the messengers capital M angels that God sent Jesus Christ is superior to them. And he starts talking about the world to come. He says about which we are speaking. And we talked about how uh, there is this world that is yet to come. And that world began in a partial sense when Jesus completed his work and when he sat down and when our salvation began on the cross and in the resurrection, but that it's not quite here. There's this already and this not yet. And we'll talk about that in the sermon today because the end of Revelation is really focused on that. We talked about how when Jesus returns, he's not bringing in something completely new. And for a lot of us who grew up in the church, the teaching on what is yet to come is teaching that has been either absent or at the very least a bit muddled and confusing. We got air conditioner ghosts. And so one of the one of the things that we need to understand to get what the author is talking about here in the already not yet is what is the future? What is it that we're waiting for? You see a lot of times the confusion that exists in the church about the future um, when people die in the way that we talk about what happens after death. And when we talk about what's going to happen when the Lord returns, I can't tell you how many Christians I have known who have thought, and this isn't to make fun of what people, people believe what they believe because it's what they were taught. So I'm picking on the teachers for a lack of clarity, but the number of Christians that I've encountered who believe that when they die, they become angels or that when children, especially children, babies, well, he's an angel in heaven now. And if you mean a sweet, precious, perfect being in the spine, whatever, I don't nitpick on words. But when I ask people some follow-up questions, sometimes they genuinely believe that when we die, we become angels. But that's not what scripture says at all. You are not an angel, nor are you a future angel. You are a human being. Angels are not made in the image of God. Humans are made in the image of God. You will no more become an angel than you will become a walrus or a snail. You are a human. That is what you will be. And so when Jesus returns, when we have this final state that we're going to live in for eternity, we will not be walruses or snails or angels. We will be human beings. In fact, we will be the same human being that we are today. The same personhood. I will be distinctly and uniquely Paul, just the way I am in life, as I will be in the world to come. And that... We're inconsistent because we're confused about the future. We're inconsistent about the future too. And we believe that, right? Because we do say one of the things that we look forward to about the world to come, which is true from scripture, is that we will be reunited with those we love who love the Lord. And so we will know them. The The grandmother that we had that was such a stalwart in the faith who read the scriptures to us and who taught us, we will be reunited with her when we are with the Lord. Our moms, our dads, our spouses, whoever has gone before us into the presence of the Lord, we will be united, reunited with them and we will know them as them. It's not like some strange uh, modernist movie where we would have some vague recollection of, you know, I think I know this person, but I don't know who they are. No, we will know them as them. Uh, and in fact, a perfected glorified form of them, which we will long for. So when we talk about the world that is to come, We don't categorically and fundamentally change. That's why scripture doesn't talk about us uh, in terms of what we are today disappearing and becoming something utterly different. It talks about things being made new. We will have glorified bodies. We will have glorified minds. We will have the stuff that God made as good. That was corrupted by sin and the fall and the curse. It will be finally and ultimately and eternally glorified in the coming of Jesus Christ. What exactly does that look like? I don't know. I don't know what what physical age you will have in the new heavens and the new earth. I don't know what the nature of marriage will be in the new heavens and the new earth. I don't know a lot about how that is going to work. But I know that I'm going to be a human being with human flesh and that I am going to be distinctly and uniquely Paul, just like I was here. And the people who knew Paul will know me and I will know the people that I knew. Um, And so when we talk about the world that is to come, We want to make sure that we aren't confused and think that what we live in today is, at its core, fundamentally and essentially different from eternity. Now, all of that comes with one big giant footnote, right? Which is, uh, there won't be any sin, and there won't be any curse, and there won't be any effects of the fall and the curse. And so... On the one hand, we got to look at this as two sides of a coin, where on the one side of the coin, it is true when we say, I will be Paul there just as I am here. But on the other side of the coin, can you imagine the existence of a Paul without any sin? I can't. Daphne can't. Right? But there is, in that new earth, there is a Paul who does not sin. A Paul who acts Righteously in every situation, in every word I think, in every thought that I have, in every interaction, I love God with all of my heart, mind, soul, and strength and never fail. And I love my neighbor as myself and I never fail. That's unimaginable to me. But I am the same Paul. Back to the other side of the coin. In the same way when we look at the, the new earth. We've got an earth where there will be stuff. We, it is not an immaterial existence. It talks about when Jesus returns, all the bodies are raised and reunited with the spirits that they have been separated from since their death. So when we die now, our bodies go into the ground and our spirits go to be with God or to be in hell. And when Jesus comes, all that's put back together for the judgment. Bodies and bodies are raised spirits come back to bodies and we stand before the Lord and we receive judgment. And so it is a material realm. We will have bodies. The resurrected Jesus. Was he a spirit that floated around in immaterial or did he have a body? He had a body. His body was raised and his spirit reunited with it. Now he had a glorified body. So what's it like to have a body where you're not sore for three days after softball and can't walk or where you can't move your muscles after mountain bike rides, right? What is it to have a body that doesn't suffer the effects of the fall? I don't know, but that's what he says will happen. No pain, nothing broken. Uh, we'll have those kinds of bodies. So all we'll have work. There will be things to do. The Lord made us to work. Work is not a, uh, an invention of humankind to fill our time. We were made to be productive. We are to produce Christian families. We are to produce goods and services. We are to produce things of value in this world. God made us to be makers because God himself is a maker and we are made in his image. And in the new heavens and the new earth, we'll still be makers. We'll still have work. We'll still produce things. But what's it like? That's the one side of the coin, other side of the coin. What's it like to have work where the earth never works against you, where there's no toil, there's no thorn, there's no thistle, there's no there's no rotten produce, there's no bad harvest, there's no wrong thinking, there's no miscalculation, there's no mistaken uh, effort. I don't know what that's like. But that's what it's going to be like. So when we talk about the new heavens and the new earth, we talk about the already and not yet the world that is to come. We've got to keep in mind something that for most of us, I suspect, certainly for me, I think for a lot of you is different than the way we thought or some of the ways we've been taught. And I just think there's so little teaching about the world to come anyway. And for good reason, the Bible's not focused on that. The Bible, it doesn't give us a bunch of details. It leaves a bunch of questions unanswered, but I think we've filled in a lot of gaps in our knowledge with stuff we either just made up or got from a greeting card or from a Hallmark Christmas movie. And those things are not what scripture says, sorry, not picking on your Hallmark Christmas movies, (laughs) but when it comes to theology, uh, they can, they can, uh, leave a little bit, uh, to be desired. So this is this already not yet we're coming into a completely new age, the age of the risen conquering ultimate Lord Christ to which every knee actually has bowed. And yet that new age comes in a somewhat familiar setting, the things that God made when he made us in the week of creation. Um, And so we talked about how that contrast, that difference exists with Psalm eight as well. And that the original author in Psalm eight, David says, what is man that you're mindful of him? You made him a little lower than the angels. He uses this language that we read to talk about the position of man. And we ask the question, well, what is man? Is man nothing or is man the exalted creation of Christ who is going to reign over the universe at the time of his coming? And the answer is both answers both uh we are creatures you know uh Jake and I have been uh playing racquetball and having theological conversations with our friend Naeem who came to visit uh our service a while and one of the things that uh Naeem and I were talking about recently was um uh, what uh hold on I have to think about how I want to say this Forget that story. Let me, kind of, let me Let me approach that a different way. Um, he's talking, Psalm 8, David's talking about it in a sense of degrees. He's talking about um, mankind having been created and that itself, the very fact that we're created puts a giant gulf between us and God. And so as you think about um new age religion, religions or Eastern religions, you think about sort of mysticism and uh, what's called pantheism or pantheism. There's a little bit of God in everything. You're a God. I'm a God. The tree's got some God in it. It's all from one source. Um, and the, the biggest way that Christianity differs from those religions just at a very high philosophical level is that those religions don't see a giant chasm In between the created thing and the one who created. And Christianity says that chasm is, tiny asterisk footnote, insurmountable. (laughs) The gap that exists between the God who creates and the things that are created is huge. It is the biggest gap you could possibly imagine. There is no way that that gap could ever be bridged unless God himself bridged it. So again, two sides of a coin, something we hold in tension, big gap between the creator and the creature. And so is David wrong when he says to God, what is man that you are mindful of him? We're, we're a creature. We're, you know, we are a walrus or a slug in the category of we've been created. We don't have the ability to make out of nothing. We need stuff and then we can put it together and make something. God made out of nothing. He spoke. And because he desired for it to be, it was. So this gap is huge. The son of man that you care for him. Yeah, why does God care about man at all? And then that's when we talked about the double meaning of the song. One of Jesus's titles is the son of man. Now, David didn't know that. David didn't know it when he was writing it. But God, the Holy Spirit knew this is a psalm that David's writing that's going to have two meanings. It's going to have the meaning that David intends, which is absolutely true. And then there's going to be this messianic meaning when Jesus comes that, wait, you cared enough about man to become one. You cared enough about humanity. To take on human flesh. That even you, God yourself, for a little while, as the author of Hebrews says, would make yourself lower than the angels. You would make yourself lower than something you have made. Because you would take on human flesh. And that is unbelievable. And then it goes on to say, what verse 8 says, that Somehow, despite man being nothing in this one sense, why would God be mindful of him? Everything will be under our feet in subjugation. Everything is true of Jesus. But was it true of the incarnate Jesus prior to his resurrection? No. Jesus rendered unto Caesar what was Caesar. Jesus stood before Pilate as on trial. Jesus was convicted and was put on a cross. Not everything was under Jesus' feet for a little while. And yet, what the author of Hebrews says, going back to Psalm 8 and pulling it forward, is once Jesus ascended, that work of all things being under his feet was complete. So it's already everything we need for all things to be under his feet has happened. But it's not yet. We're going to live in this gap where everything is principia. Principially under Jesus's feet, but the world we live in. And as we look around, it doesn't feel that way. We're in this period of waiting. There is a visible difference between what Psalm 8 promises and what we see in the world around us. Isn't there? Do you feel like all things are in subjection to you? Do you feel like the world works the way you tell it to work? I can't even get my own mind and lips and body to work the way I tell them to work, much less all you other people who refuse to do what I tell you to do. It's part of the frustration of life that in everything we encounter, there are the equivalents of thorns and thistles. Can somebody pull up Genesis 3, 18? I don't expect you to still have the piece of paper I gave out two weeks ago, but... Somebody go to Genesis three eighteen, and John, will you go to Philippians? uh, No, no, go to Philippians four thirteen. Noah, please, you got it, Renee. Three eighteen. Thorns and thistles it will bring forth for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. Does that sound like a world that's in subjection to us? No, we didn't plant seeds for thorns and thistles. We planted seeds for fruit, and what did we get? Thorns and thistles. Are you fully redeemed? Is there anything else that has to happen for you to declare factually, I am a beloved child of God and this whole universe will be in subjection to me? No, it is finished. Jesus said on the cross, he sat down. Hebrews one said completed action forever. Nothing else to do. He sat down having made atonement for their sins. You are fully redeemed, but are you fully glorified? No, not if you still sin. And I trust most of us recognize that uh, try as we might rely on the spirit as we might. We still sin. We still covet things that don't belong to us. We still speak things that are not true. We still uh, have plenty of moments a day where we fail to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Try as we might. But the question of Hebrews is not, are you fully glorified? It's, is there any glory in you? Yes, there has to be because you're a partaker in what it calls such great salvation. You've already received glory. You've already received the same type of glory that will characterize your whole existence in the world to come. You just haven't received the fullness of glory. Um, So if you think about our timeline, right? uh, On the whiteboard with, The tree of creation and the fall of the snake and all of the prophets and the writings and then John the Baptist, the incarnation of Jesus, the cross of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus sitting down at the right hand of the father. Take that moment, Jesus sitting at the right hand of the father and go out on that timeline until Jesus returns. And as to Karen's question a couple weeks ago, we don't know if that portion of the timeline is this wide or if that portion of the timeline is this wide. We have no way of knowing, but we know that's where in the timeline we live. That's for the people who have received the glory of the ascended Christ, but not the fullness of the glory of the ascended Christ. And you've got to read the Old Testament, as funny as that is, to understand why God has not come back yet. And it's because he is patiently waiting for all of his own children to return to him in repentance. God saves. God calls to salvation. God, the Holy Spirit, changes our hearts and saves us before we could ever do anything good for God ourselves. It isn't salvation is the gift of God. Ephesians says salvation is entirely a work of God. But within salvation, God gives us something very important to do, which is to exercise faith, to believe in our hearts and to say with our lips that Jesus Christ is savior. And so Jesus is waiting to come until every single one of his children has exercised faith. And the moment that happens you want to know you watch the charts on TV that tell you we got to wait for this war to happen for Jesus to come back. Or my mom was reminding me on the uh, she's visiting this week and she was reminding me about one of the organizations that they get mail from that, um, I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole because it makes me so angry, but there is a branch of Christianity that raises money to send Jews back to Jerusalem because until the Jews are all back in Israel, rebuilding the temple and sacrificing in the temple, Jesus cannot return. Not going to go down that. But all these things people think are the reason why Jesus hasn't come back. And yet it tells us plainly in scripture why Jesus has, hasn't come back. His sheep hear his voice and they know it. And he'll not lose one of the ones that are in his hand. And so until every single one of Jesus' sheep is in his hand, Jesus cannot come back. That's what we're waiting for. Um, and so we have to live in this age of trials And struggles and tribulations, age of warnings and judgments from God, the trumpets that we've read about in Revelation. We have to live in this age where even those of us who love God and who want to love our friends and family well, mess it up. And make messy relationships and make brokenness. We have to live in this age where we, like Paul says, do the things that we don't want to do and fail to do the things we know we ought to do. We have to live in this age until Christ comes and we throw our hands up and we say, how in the world can I do it? And what does Philippians 4.13 say? Nothing. How in the world will we do it? I can do all things through him who gives me strength. And what did Christ say at the end of the gospels? And behold, I will be with you until the end of the age. And what did Christ say in acts when he ascended to go sit down at his father's right hand? He said, I'm sending you who? And what, what's the word he uses for the spirit, the helper. How in the world do I live in an age where I have a taste of the glory that is to come? I desire, I long for that glory, and yet I can't do it. I do it by the power of Christ and by the spirit of Christ, who not only gives me the ability to overcome sin, but who draws me back to him time after time after time in repentance and who keeps me from being uh, discouraged and downtrodden because I know that I'm not condemned in these sins. I know that even though I, w- I have to stop doing these sins and that by the spirit, I can stop doing these sins. I know that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's what I know. And so that's the answer to how do I do it? And this is where the passage turns from man, from us to Christ. Christ. Because he's the one that we can look at as the proof, as the, the deposit, as the, the pioneer, as the evidence that it can be done. That mankind, that humanity, that human flesh can, in fact... Be fully glorified and be perfectly righteous. And we look at Jesus and we say, well, of course, Jesus could do that. He was God. He was Jesus. You're missing the point. You're missing the point. He could have been perfectly righteous and not taken on human flesh. Part of why he took on human flesh, Hebrews says, is to redeem humanity. And that's why it uses the language and our translations will have different things, but you'll know the words of founder or author or pioneer of our salvation. And what all of those words are trying to get us to see is here is Jesus, who was 100% human, who's marching at the head of the column in perfect glory and perfect righteousness. And he turns around to mankind and he says, I am you. I am human. I am mankind. And so what I have and am leading into, and Jesus has actually received in the ascension and in the sitting down, he says, you're just a few steps behind me in this march. And this is what you will be. So what is man that God is mindful of him? Well, he is the one to whom all things will be put in subjection. We don't see the fullness of glory revealed in ourselves, but we do see in the Gospels and in Acts the fullness of glory revealed in Jesus human flesh. And so after his humiliation, where he was lower than the angels, he is glorified. And he is no longer lower than the angels. And he takes the right side of majesty in heaven and he's crowned with glory and honor and he begins his rule over all of creation. And so what the Psalm eight, what it promises is not fulfilled in mankind yet. But what the author of Hebrews is saying is it has been fulfilled in Christ Jesus was found in the appearance of man. He was made a little lower than the angels for a short time. He was a real man, existed in a humiliated state, humiliated being less than what he needed to be. And the so that in verse 9 explains why this humiliation is necessary. So that by the grace of God, he may taste death for everyone. Tasted death. Not just died but that he had the, (laughs) we don't have a great expression for this in English. Um, In Latin, it's qua. It's the thing as the thing. It's what, there's, there's, what is the essence of death? What is the prime representation of death? And that's what Jesus had for us so that we could look at death And say, well, I'm mankind and death is coming for me. But what did death do to Jesus? Nothing. He conquered it. He tasted death, death, all death had to offer. And he conquered it. So what's going to happen to me when death comes to me? I'm going to conquer it. I am an overcomer even of death itself. And this was all by the grace of God, the father, it was all by God's grace and by God's plan that he created us this way, that he caused Jesus to take on human flesh and to provide salvation for us. This is the infinite love of God toward us. Any questions about, I know that's a lot, (laughs) but do we see, Why Hebrews is saying, remember, put all this back in the context of Hebrews. Why would you go back? Why would you go back to Judaism? Why would you go to another religion or another philosophy? Why would you go to any other worldview or understanding when you were shown by Jesus that he was the pioneer of salvation who would rule over all things and that he conquered death and if you follow him... You need not fear death because you will conquer it. You will be fully glorified. All things will be in subjection to you. That's what Jesus offers. Now look back at this other thing, which in their case was Judaism. In our case is a million and one options. Look at all those other things and say, what are they offering? What are they offering? And the answer to most The answer for most people and the things that they're considering instead of Christianity is that they're being offered 80 selfish years. You can have 80 selfish years to live for yourself, to live as you want, to get what you want out of everything, to maximize all your relationships and all your efforts for yourself. You can have that. There are lots of religions and worldviews in this world that offer you 80 selfish years. And what the author of Hebrews would say to us is that's your choice, but weigh that against what Jesus is offering you, which is the conquering of death itself and eternity where everything is under your feet. And where all the things that you would choose to do today that you think would be great, where all those things can actually be done without sin and without resistance to the glory of God and to your maximum enjoyment. So don't go back. It's beginning of Hebrews 2 that we'll talk about in a few weeks. Any questions about the argument here in Hebrews 2? I want to close by reading just a couple of paragraphs from uh, Simone Kestemacher is one of the great New Testament scholars. I think he died a few years ago. Um, the If you've ever seen the New Testament commentary series that's read, um, it's like 13 volumes, the whole New Testament. There aren't very many commentary series that are good because most of the time, somebody who's an expert on Hebrews is not an expert on Luke. So normally, stay away from series and just buy one commentary at a time. But this New Testament commentary series, which is written by two men, is really excellent. And I just want to read you four paragraphs um, on his summary here. Angels surround the throne of God and constantly behold the glory of the Lord. They are immortal. They do not marry and, in a sense, are superhuman because of their power and might. Nevertheless, God has given man dominion over the works of his hands. Authority over every living creature in the world was given to man, not to angels. In Hebrews 1, the author stresses the divinity of Christ. In the second chapter, he emphasizes Christ's humanity. Jesus Christ, in his divine and human natures, was able to fulfill the mandate originally given to Adam. Christ shall have dominion. Because Christ accomplished his work of atonement and therefore claimed the crown of glory and honor, he is the rightful ruler of God's creation. And by his death, he has obtained dominion, not only for himself, but also for all his followers. We have become heirs and co-heirs with Christ. The parallel between Paul's quote from Psalm 8 and, And the citation of Psalm 8 by the author of Hebrews in 2, 6 through 8 is striking. A key term in both is the word to subject. God is the agent. Christ has taken the place of the first man. And that time is elapsing before Christ's work comes to completion. We need to look at Jesus and see the template for where we will be. If we walk with Jesus, we conquer death, we become glorified, we become the heir of all things, and all of creation is in subjection to us. And I will tell you for myself, and just having pastored multiple churches now and talked with a lot of Christians, I believe it's true of most of you, you do not think of eternity that way. We do not have enough hope and excitement For eternity, we do not look at following Jesus as something that has incredible benefits. And we almost feel bad saying that I'm following Jesus because it's God and it's the right thing to do. Yes, but we're also following Jesus. Jesus tells us to because of the benefits, because this is what God made us to have and to be and to do. And that ought to give us a lot of enthusiasm and encouragement for walking with the Lord.